The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. Good morning, Joe Freed. Good morning, Dan Ambrose. Good to be with you. You too. And we are doing our first Trial Lawyers University podcast. And it's most appropriate that you are the first guest on it. Because, as most people don't know, you are a big part of the reason why I'm sitting here today. Right? Do you remember that conversation? I don't know if I'm going to accept the responsibility for you, but um, I'm sure, sure I'm proud of what you've created. And I do remember, I remember being part of your journey and I've watched you go through different iterations along the way. And I love where you are now. Well, I appreciate that. And you've been, a, you know, obviously a big part of that because we remember we were sitting at that um, outdoor bar at the Wynn and I was telling you about my desire to become a civil trial lawyer said, oh, if you want to do that, that, you know, you need to be able to speak at civil trial conferences. And, and I was like, well, what am I going to talk on? Do you remember what you told me? Like, what would I speak about? Yeah, I do remember. I, I remember what I told you is you, you at the time, you, your experience was uh, handling criminal cases. And I said, Dan, you got to figure out something that is uh, unique to your experience that civil lawyers don't have. And then bring it to them. And it's not a loss leader. I remember telling you, give them the full Monty, teach it all. And because a lot of times people think that they're going to get on a stage and they're going to give you like a half piece and that will make you call, they'll make you, they'll make people call you to get the rest of the story. But the, the truth is, in my experience, just teach everything and there'll be plenty of work to go around. Yep. And then I was showing you my witness preparation method. I think I first told you, Dan, that sucks. And you went, he said, no, Joe, it didn't suck. And you don't understand it. And, and then you refined it more and more. And I mean, look how far you've come from there. I feel like I'm interviewing you for this podcast. Well, but you told me it's like psychodrama in a chair and you got me all upset. Remember that? I think I told you this was lukewarm psychodrama. Good thing we had that conversation because who knows? Well, you know, it you motivated know. you. Sure did motivate you. Because right? you never know when, you know, when you, which fork, when you hit the fork, when you take the left or the right how your life's going to turn out. I mean, except if you'd have taken the other fork, you know, so it's every person that comes through your life that has an influence on you. You can never, you know, it's hard to, it's impossible to guess, okay, if that person wouldn't come to my life, would I be where I'm at or where would I be now? So the other thing is, you know, we were talking about this, you and I yesterday about teaching lawyers and, and, you know, some lawyers just want to pat on the back. They don't really want to learn. They want you to pat them on the back and kind of verify them and like validate them. You and I both come from the school of thought, you know, just be honest with me. If something sucks, tell me it sucks because how am I going to get better? And so you and I had the, that foundation with each other and could have that degree of honesty with each other. There's certainly times when you come into my life and say, Joe, I saw what you did. I know you think it was good. Let me tell you, it could have been a whole lot better. And you, and you were right when you did those things. And so I think it's a, there's a lesson to that. You know, it's like one of the first lessons and we talk about we're both – a lot of our lives are teaching other people how to be the best trial lawyers that they are. And the first lesson is be willing to come to learn. If you come already, you know, with the attitude that you've got it all, you've got this, and all you really want to do is show off, that's, you're, you're not going to get any better. And if that, you know, so, I mean, anyway, it's a point that's worth making. That's a good point. And let me ask you about, you know, this teaching and learning, because you are, you know, you're pretty much at the height of your career. I mean, I know we never want to be at the height of our careers because that means we're on a, on a down slight, you know, then, then we have to go down from there. But, you know, what are you doing these days to continue learning and continue your quest to get better? Well, Dan, you know me, you know, I'm always working on things. So, I mean, right now I have a, yet another coach in my life who is working with me on because I believe being the best trial lawyer requires you to best to be the best version of yourself as a human being first. It's not you're not different, you know, Joe trial lawyer versus Joe 
you know, dad or Joe husband or Joe friend or whatever, you know, the idea is to kind of unify all those personas or brands, if you will, and kind of be authentic. The more authentic you are, I think the better trial lawyer you are. And so for me, it's been a journey to become authentic because my, you know, left to my own devices early in my life, like probably many other people, I didn't feel very good about myself and I didn't needed to deal with a lot of the same things many, if not most other people have to deal with, which is, you know, the idea of being worthy, the idea of being good enough, all those kinds of things. And I'm still dealing with it, you know, all these years later. I mean, it's very different now than it was early on, but I have a coach right now who has been blowing my mind with new, you know, concepts of things that I haven't looked at in the way that he's showing them to me. And before this coach, there was another coach. And so, for me, it's a it's a constant journey. I'm reading constantly about, I don't like really using the word self-help kind of stuff because really what it is is I, I feel like I'm a student of the human animal of which I am one, right? So, you know, we got to understand ourselves and then we got to understand, you know, how other people are. And I'm, I'm also at a point in my career where I've done enough to where I see kind of the BS that in terms of how lawyers are trained, you know, like from law school, and how, while I get having to learn how to think like a lawyer is important, man, as soon as you become a trial lawyer, that stuff starts to work against you. The training about being so focused on the, on the word and so focused on the prima facie case and so focused on things like, I remember being told things in law school, and you did too, like hide your bad facts between two good facts. I mean, come on, how is that authentic? If you accept the idea that cases, no matter what kind, are really nothing more than battles of credibility, then how the hell is that being credible? How is that good advice? It's terrible advice. I mean, you're walking in, you're going to be, you're going to be hiding your bad facts between two good facts. You know, ask yourself how credible that is. Or, you know, we're trained to put as many theories out as possible that somebody might determine there's liability based on. Like 10 alternatives is better than one alternative. That's great lawyer thinking. You got great points for being an issue spotter in law school, but go try that in front of a jury and see what happens. I mean, it's not, it's the opposite of credible. And it also needlessly does all kinds of bad things. Like it needlessly extends the length of time it takes you to try a case. It needlessly gives the defense things to poke at that otherwise they wouldn't have to poke at, which they're poking at because whether they realize it or not, they're attacking your credibility. So we... We walk in. Anyway, I'm way off our topic at this point, but I hope what comes out of this is I'm, I'm still excited. I feel like I'm on the verge of new things now that I'm super excited about having to do with, you know, understanding you know, my emotionality, understanding how my emotional state not only is important for me, but how it affects other people. And so, like, imagine for a second if Vordire is in part instead of focus so much on the words and what people are saying, what if there's a whole energy level of jury selection that's happening where you're consciously stepping in and whether it's jury selection or any other thing, pre-trial in a, in a deposition or, or you're about to do a direct or a cross. I mean, if you think about what happens in, in Hollywood, you know, you think about a movie before the action starts, not only is the scene, the physical scene is set, but the emotional scene gets set and they get to use lighting and they get to use camera angles and they get to use music to set these things. And it's against, and it's through that lens that they've created that you now see a scene and you're going to experience that scene very differently depending on where you are emotionally. So take all that and let's start to apply some of that. Let's study this and let's start to apply that so that when you walk into a deposition, it's not just wherever the hell you feel that day, whether you're having a good day, a bad day, uh, you're pissed about this, you're angry about that, you know, you're whatever. What if you, you know, you, part of our prep was to put ourselves in the right frame and that be intentional and that through whatever the examination is or the jury selection, you're very conscious of where you are emotionally and you're very conscious of how that might affect other people. I think this is an, an area as human beings learn more about the neuroscience of this stuff that I'm talking about. I think we can apply that within trial work in new and exciting ways. 
that make us better able to tell a truthful story. And I, I say it this way because I don't want anybody to think that I'm looking for a way to trick anybody. It's, in fact, it's quite the opposite. If I'm tricking anybody, I'm tricking myself into putting myself into, consciously put myself into a frame, you know, as opposed to not being conscious of it at all. I hope that makes some sense. Some sense, but when you say consciously putting yourself into a frame. Yeah. I mean, an emotional frame. I mean, okay. you, know, you, what I mean is, you know, at a basic level, you control how you're feeling right now, right? Right. And you and I have talked about this before where, you know, we can go and science has now shown that it only takes two minutes. If I, if I take you and I go march you around a room in a pose, like you just want to race, you know, with your hands up in the air and you stomp around the room, like, like you just accomplished the most amazing thing ever in two minutes, your biochemistry changes something like 400 chemicals and hormones in your body that will adjust toward that feeling and support that feeling. So it's almost like fake it till you make it. Actually, there's, there's a lot of science behind that. So if you did that before you walked into a room, you're going to be in a different state and that emotional state is contagious. You know, if you ever go to an event where you walk into a room and suddenly you feel energized or the opposite, you suddenly feel zapped. Like, where the hell did my energy go? I mean, I'm just on the floor. I don't want to do anything. Well, why is that happening? Well, we're starting to understand how and why that happens. And what if we can, what if we can utilize that? What if we can take actual control of that and create repeatable, predictable outcomes based on that? That's what I'm excited about right now, these kinds of things. I know that you were doing some workshops down there in Atlanta, like on state control. Is that kind of in that same realm of, you know, the stuff you're working on now? Yeah. I mean, so people call it different things. The, the truth is we don't have much of a language for it yet, right? Because, I mean, we do from a neuroscience perspective, but applying it to you and I day-to-day -day stuff. So, the, you know, the idea of emotional state control is just the idea of being conscious that you have, you are walking around right now feeling a certain way. You could give that certain way a, a name and say, you know, this is whatever, this is joy for me, or this is happiness, or this is neutral, whatever it is. And then we can consciously move from one state to another state. And it's like a muscle. The more you practice it, the better you get at moving yourself. And then the exciting part to me is that you then connect that and to know how, how contagious that is. So like if you if you change your state and you walk into a party or a deposition room, if you're energized in a certain way, that's going to affect everybody else in the room. That's the crazy part. And, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of psychology studies out there of things like, I don't want to get too far into this because I know that's not necessarily the intent of this, but you know, there's studies out there that say, that show like, for instance, if you can have two sets of people do interviewing, you know, doing mock interviews. And, you know, the interviewers think that the study is about the interviewees, but it's really the other way around. And so half of the interviewers are given a warm drink to drink while they're doing the interviews. And the other half are given a cold drink to drink during the interviews. They interview the same people. And the people who are given cold drinks describe the people who they're interviewing as cold and, and calculated and, you know, those kind of language. Whereas the ones who are given warm drinks are, are describe them as loving and caring and warm. And so, I mean, imagine, you know, it made me want to go and serve hot cocoa to the jury in the morning, right? Let's do hot cocoa on the right morning. But on another morning, I want to feed them ice cold fricking popsicles, right? Because there's sometimes during the trial, you want them warm and fuzzy. And there's sometimes you don't. And so that's what I'm talking about, is to be able to set the scene of how people are going to experience whatever they're going to experience, so that when they witness an examination, they're witnessing it, I personally think right now, how they perceive somebody is, you know, we are always worried about what's the credibility of the person or what's the, how does that witness play, so to speak? And our focus historically has been on how that witness plays and the focus is on the witness. And what I'm suggesting is maybe we should spend some time focusing on 
what's the emotionality of, of the audience, in our case, the jurors? Because if we can influence that and, and ha- help them be in certain states before they see that witness, they may see that witness differently. When you say help them get in a certain state, how, just give me an example of what you would, could do in a courtroom for a cross-examination of, let's say, a defense expert and, you know, what state that you, you know, you're going to undermine their credibility because of all the things that they didn't look at because the defense didn't give it to them. And so they're sitting up there with, you know, half information, giving these opinions like they're God. What I believe is, is that this is a one step in addition to some of the things that you've been teaching for a while, which is to teach people how to connect, how to connect with people, right? What's the purpose? Once they're connected, then what happens? What happens is the people you're connected to start to, if, if your energy is high level, and I think of it as amplitude, then their amplitude is going to move up with your energy. And so what I'm suggesting right now, and there's other things that can be done here, but it would take some, we'd, we'd spend our whole time on this. But the, what I'm suggesting right now is a lot of this has to do with how are you, it, it, you, you only control yourself. And so if you are, if you come in and you are angry when you're attacking that witness, then you're presenting a certain way and that's going to affect the jury in a certain way because you're ramped up in a certain direction and they may, they, they may not be ready for that, right? So by contrast, you may want to start by not coming out angry and you can go and do some exercises and take yourself into, let's just say, sort of, you know, the Zen place, Dan's happy place, okay? And now you can start from there and now you can start to move toward, consciously move your energy. And all I'm suggesting is, for right now, for our discussion, all I'm suggesting is that's contagious. And so we're working on right now, there's a few of us around the country who are kind of working on how do you work this in a courtroom and how do you work this specifically with witnesses you know, I have a lot more experience with this right now uh, with deposition taking because that's where it's kind of my laboratory where I can, I get to do it so frequently. And then we've been starting to pull focus groups together so that the first time we're doing this is not in a real trial. We're using focus groups to see if we can sort of move, move where people are. Where's their baseline at the time they're going to experience something? And it's, there's, you know, it's, it's work in progress. But to me, it's super exciting. I mean, I'm just a nerd this way, but I totally, totally believe, just like I know you do, you, you know the lawyer, how the lawyer acts and where the lawyer is in terms of their, I'm calling it emotional state. Some people might call it something else. Even when it comes to how likely are they going to successfully connect to the people on the jury, you're teaching people techniques and some of the things you're doing of how to help those lawyers connect. And for the, sometimes for the first time, they're, they're learning, wait, there is a way that I can improve my chance of actually being connected to people, whether those people in the real regular world would generally like me or not like me is not the criteria anymore. There's techniques, you've, you've studied them and you're teaching them now. And I'm doing the same thing in a little bit different context. And so we're we're learning to connect. And then from the connection, one of the things that I'm trying to then see is once we're connected, then can I move people up and down, you know, around emotionally and be very conscious of that so that you don't want the jury in the same place emotionally when they're about to listen to the defense expert than when they're listening to your expert, right? If they're in a warm, fuzzy place when they're listening to your expert and they're in a not warm, fuzzy place, uh, when they're listening to the defense expert, they're, that may be helpful to us. That makes sense. One thing that I've uh, been practicing and is the ability to smile authentically on command without, you know, because even because when I train people, I teach them, you know, the first thing is, you know, saying good morning, everybody, and micro-connecting all the jurors' eyes. Or, but to practice, what I do is whenever I, I'm, especially at hotels or stores, you know, with a clerk, I'll be like, hi, is it, can you tell me where I can find the cereal aisle? And so I always work on having a warm face and connecting with that person. And they're like, Ur. and then I'm like, 
can I make this person smile at me before I leave them in this 30 second interaction? Well, that's what you're doing. You're doing the same thing without knowing it. You're doing the same thing that I'm trying to create intentional ways to do it. Like, could, could we improve instead of you just smiling? Can I take what that smile represents and the energy behind that? And can we, what if we could turn up the amplitude of it so people were much more likely to smile quickly? And for you, it's stores. For me, I'm in airports every week. I'm, I'm the creepy guy in the airport because I'm making eye contact. You know, I, I'm sitting there trying to, you know, connect with people in weird ways. I'm sure people think I'm batshit crazy, you know, at, at times, but I figure I'm probably not going to see those people again. You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of safe place to, to do the work. But literally, I mean, so I, I respect it. And I do think what both of us are saying to people is there are techniques and you need to both learn them and then go out there and practice them. This isn't something you read in a book and then you go, oh, gee, I know about that. You might know it intellectually, but it's weird to come in and teach yourself how to smile in a way that because at first you're faking it, but you don't really want it to be fake. You want it to be authentic. Right. No, it, it's like watching people learn to smile or watching people learn to move their hand with the rhythm of their voice. and practice. It looks so weird, but I'm like, you have to be comfortable being weird until you can do it enough where it doesn't look weird anymore. The crazy thing is the other thing is really what's weird. The untrained thing that people do is really what's weird. So it's just conditioning, right? I mean, all we're doing is you know, like it's so much so important for people to know. I mean, a lot of things that are conditioned, you can't just stop doing what you're conditioned to do. You have to replace the conditioning with something else. So, you know, if somebody's not used to getting up and smiling, if their first inclination when they get in front of a jury is to get up and even without knowing it, they scowl. They got a mean face that comes over them and they don't even know it. It's not their intention to portray themselves as mean, but they are because of conditioning. So all I'm suggesting is let's bring intentionality and consciousness to that and then do the same thing that you're teaching people. You know, let's stand up and, you know, there are times you do want to be scowling, but there are times that you want to be smiling. And how about we, for the first time ever, actually take control of that instead of it just being whatever the hell I feel at that moment, I can actually create the feelings instead of have them by happenstance be there or not be there. When in, in training, you know, I see, you know, when practicing voir dire, like a jury share something and the lawyer's like, thank you for sharing. And it's so weird because only in that setting would somebody not have a warm face. Because when everybody does anything for us and we thank them, like, thanks, Joe, I appreciate you doing that for me. But we have a warm face. But when we're in the courtroom, I see some, because of the tension and the, the that lawyer saying, okay, where am I going next? So they're no longer present and really, you know, connecting with that person. And it's weird to say, thank you. It's like, thanks for nothing. Yeah, it's, it's fake. Have you noticed they all always say thank you, thank you twice, thank you, thank you for sharing, thank you, thank you for sharing. Right, but it's like his conscious. But here's here's one thing I'd ask you. I would ask you when you're getting ready to walk up to that clerk and you're going to smile. What's the process you go through other than to s tell your face to smile? Is there an internal process you go through? Because my studies, my science would tell me that what's more important than you kind of forcing yourself to smile is go inside and find something that's really worth smiling about legitimately and then just bring that in first and now walk into the situation and you're going to be smiling and it's going to be an authentic smile because it's not, you know, it's, it's because you've just thought of something that, that legitimately makes you giggle or smile and then you walk up. So it may be something to play with for you and just see if that changes it being easier or not to do that. It's sort of like the, you know, because if we start inside and the smile comes, or we start here and then it just goes back inside of you. Because I think the most important thing is to be able to, to authentically smile on command because it does change your state. You know, because when you look at somebody and they smile back at you. It's funny we're talking about smile. Smile is the most important neurological, I think, hack. Because even in all the training stuff that I've done, and you know, I've talked to you about some of these, I mean, I've had, I've had coaches who have been, you know, former Mossad agents and all kinds of weird stuff talking about the two universal things, every different branch that I study, it's breath and smile. If you want to do a quick interrupt of how you're feeling in a moment, 
If you take a deep breath and smile, that's step one. That's what literally spies in field work are taught as the number one intercept. And it, it causes all kinds of, we're just starting to understand the why behind it, but it's the number one hack. If you can, if you can just practice, take a deep breath and smile, it will change your world and everybody else's world too. Pretty cool. But you got to practice like everything else. Cause like this whole trial learning thing is the most fascinating profession because in any other profession or any other skill that somebody wanted to learn, if you want to learn how to you know, ride a bike or let's say, let's say play tennis, would you just watch tennis players on TV? Would you read a book about tennis or would you go join the tennis league, take lessons and get a coach? But trial lawyers never do that. They think, oh, I got a case coming up. I'm just going to go try the case. And they, there's so little preparation or their preparation is like focus groups, but just practicing isn't going to get you better. It's like practicing, you know, golf. I mean, I'm working on my golf game and it's absolutely horrible, but, but it's like being a, you know, it's like the trial, you know, learning a complex skill takes a lot of patience and it's mostly a mind game golf, like being the trial lawyer. It's mostly a mind game. It's such a confidence game. It's crazy. And the people that win, they get more confidence and they get bigger results. And when you don't, your confidence sinks. And like, you're thinking like you, when you get up, you're thinking no jury will ever listen to me again. You're in a bad place. Well, just like, you know, the difference is, you know, these professional golfers, when they get on the, when they get on the green and it's a long, gnarly putt to make their internal dialogue is I'm going to make this putt. I have the ability to do it. I can do it. I'm going to do it. Whereas if you and I get on there, it's like, no effing way am I going to make this putt. And guess what? We don't make the putt. So um, it's not only the physical skill, it's the, it's the mental piece as well. And I totally agree with that. By the way, the other piece of that is, I think a lot of trial lawyers also think that you go to one program, you go for a week somewhere, or even three weeks, like the old trial lawyer college that you and I met at. Or the new Spence you know, Method which is, you know, another three-week program. I'm not cutting on any of them. I I recommend people go to those things and learn. The crazy thing is people would go out there for three weeks with the expectation that, and in three weeks, I'm going to come back and I'm just going to be, I'm going to be at the, at the master of the universe level. And what you realize is three weeks, you're just a freaking neophyte. You've just now knocked the dust and the rust off of some things. And now you have a foundation that you have to now continue to operate. You got to, you know, it's not something that you go one time and and, um, and, you, and you learn it intellectually and that becomes part of your neurology at that point. It's not the way it works. So Joe, we talked before we got on, you said you got a trial coming up in June. So what is your process for getting ready for trial? Wow. You know, I don't know where to start the answer to that question because it's a long process, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm starting to think about what the trial can look like when I'm first learning about the case. As you know, I spend a lot of my time, I get involved in cases with other lawyers. And one of the things that I think I'm good at is being able to simplify the case and get it down to something that's winnable, even when it's a tough case and find a path through and so that yeah, question could be like, what do you do the month before trial or what do you do from the beginning? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is the whole, the whole case and then all the work that I do to try to be a better lawyer is all, all kind of comes together. And I see that as part of it, because even when I come out and even when I'm teaching, like I was just out in Huntington Beach with you, which, by the way, was just an amazing program out there. You did a phenomenal job pulling people together and. What was your favorite part of it? That's a great question. I think the community, the the energy was really, really good. And, you know, sometimes you go to conferences and you almost feel like um, there's, there's an in crowd and then there's everybody else. This kind of everybody was hanging with each other. There was, there was not the people who are, you know, at the very high end of the, of the spectrum, so to speak, hanging out with people who are brand new and who nobody knows their name yet. There wasn't an error. It wasn't set up. People aren't walking around with what I call the peacock, which is, you know, their name tag has 400 ribbons on it with, that says, I'm, I've spent a shit ton of money. I've given, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And people look at it and they don't even want to come up to you because you look like a 
like a five-star general, you know, you got all this stuff on your, so you're one of them, right? And then there's everybody else who, who didn't, there isn't any of that. Um, so I think for me, the other, the other part that I, I, um, you know, I have to say it, the food, man, I'm messing with you. Cause I know, you know, the, the everything, I mean, you, you put a lot of effort into, you can look at it in a lot of different ways. There was, there was choices for people to go to see lots of different things. So wherever their interests were, there was always something to go to. And so it wasn't just, you know, people competing for, you know, different rooms or whatever, like some programs, there was legitimately different content. I mean, wherever people were and they were interested in, and I heard people saying, man, I want to, I want, I want to see both of them. And the nice thing is, you know, most rooms, except one that I was involved in wasn't recorded, you know, but most of them are, so you can go back and look. So I, I think the the energy was, is what separated it. And then everything that goes with that, you know, so people are happy, they're in a good place. They wanted to be there. So many times you go to conferences and people are just hanging out. The conference is going on, but the most people aren't really in the conference. They just happen to be there. That wasn't going on here. There were a lot of people, you know, people there, you know, there was appropriate times that people step out and they, they're, you know, you made great social spaces for them to hang out and do that. But people were there to learn. And um, I think doing things like talking about it in advance and having people being able to, you know, even having the speakers interact with each other in advance so that they know what each other is presenting on. People aren't doing that in the world. So we're talking about, you know, getting ready for trial and the process starts kind of at the beginning and everything is together. Because when I was like, even when I was out teaching at Huntington Beach, I'm teaching, but I'm thinking about my upcoming trial. So, and it's the same, I think, for, for people who are there to learn. They're there to learn globally, but they can't help but think of what's going on in their life at that time and how they're going to apply it to that, you know, whatever it is. So it's a, you know, I guess part of what I'm saying is it's a, it's an immersive process for me. And I'm very blessed that I don't have too many cases at a time. So I can really immerse myself in them. And it's about figuring out what the best, most compelling trial narrative is. And I've told you before, I mean, for me, I I try to be very different than most lawyers because I try to focus the case down to something that's almost a binary choice for the jury. I want to do as much of the cognitive load. I want to remove as much of the cognitive load from the jurors as possible. So I don't, I want, I don't want them to have to work hard. I want them to be able to see something. I want it to be consistent with what they already believe to be true. And so a lot of work is going in to that. And then from there, then the work becomes, how do I make what I have consistent with that, which is you know really going through an editing process of trying to cut down videos, trying to limit the amount of physical evidence that I'm going to be putting in because it's sort of contrary to what we've been taught. We were taught, put as much in as you can. And I, I'm, I'm the opposite of that. I, I think that I want to put in as little as I need to. And I'm always looking for what's the emotional charge? Where's the emotional charge in the case? And a lot of times the emotional charge is not really you know, the facts of the underlying um, incident that occurred. It's not the wreck, so to speak, or the fall down. It's how the case is being defended. I'm looking for what the other side is doing that's really unfair and really, you know, sort of um, indefensible at the end of the day. And if I can find that, then I'm going to win the case. No matter what problems I have, I'm going to probably win the case because I'm going to make the case about that. I'm going to say, you know, this case is about this red light, green light intersection thing that happened, you know, but what it's really about to me is, is it okay to treat somebody like this in this community? You know, this is what happened and this is the way this guy's being treated. But then uh, logistically, the process is, is grueling because, I mean, I've been talking about sort of the mental process, but anybody who's tried a case, it doesn't matter if it's simple or a complex case, it's a grueling process to make sure you have everybody subpoenaed and you got to deal with all these damn doctors who don't want to be there and don't want to help you. And you got to figure out how you're going to get everything there. And do you have every piece of evidence in a form that's going to get admitted properly? And how are you going to publish it? And what's your backup and your backup to your backup and how you're going to get it in? Who are the witnesses? What's the order? And you're doing this all against a backdrop. You know, it's just a choreography like a play. 
But the problem is, it'd be like a play, but they don't tell you what the start time is, what the end time is, how far you're going to go before the intermission. You know, you don't get any of that. That the judge gets to decide on the fly. And by the way, I don't know what the other side's going to cor- choreography necessarily looks like. So there's a lot of moving parts, but it's an immersive process. And I'm so grateful that I have great people in my life who help me with that in terms of making sure the subpoenas are done right, the audiovisual is done. I spend a lot of time editing transcripts. Like if, if video is so much these days is done on video in trials. And I, it shocks me when I go around the country and I see people just say, well, we now call so-and-so by video. And they put a four-hour, five-hour video that's not edited at all up. And I'm like, holy shit, the poor jury just has to watch you know, something that's the length of two back-to-back gone with the winds. And there's no, there's no plot or storyline. And they're supposed to somehow follow that. It's ridiculous. We're doing ourselves a disservice. So a lot of, a lot of words here. Let me ask you this question. Do you do like focus group your voir dire and your opening statement in front of a you know, group and kind of record it and play it back and see how you're doing? I do. I wish I could say that I always do the same thing. I don't always do the same thing because it depends on the circumstances. But I like to focus group openings and I don't really do, and I probably should, but I don't really do a lot of mock jury selection. You know, I mean, we've talked a lot about jury selection, you and I, over, over the years. I mean, I've got a little bit of a different view about jury selection than a lot of our peers. I don't ask a lot of, I do my jury selections relatively quickly compared to other people. And, I, and they're, they're very, very, they're very focused. I, I personally don't think that a lot of the questions we ask and a lot of the things we go through are meaningful. Like, you know, so many of folks in, on the civil side spend so much time, you know, trying to identify tort reform jurors, for instance, I personally don't think it's useful. My biggest numbers have come from people you'd strike in a minute as tort reform people. If I've built my case around something that is right, I'm going to get bigger numbers from people who are really conservative. So I think a lot of us are creatures of habit, Dan, and, and that means that when it comes to jury selection, for instance, we just pull our last jury selection and we tweak it a little bit and do it again. That's not my, pro- my process is, is different. So I probably should practice it more, uh, but I don't. Let me ask you this question, Joe. We all have a superpower. Because like, if you ask anybody that knew me, what my superpower was, I'm pretty sure they would say networking or networking with lawyers. And it's something that I think, I, I, I think I'm pretty good at it. And I think I know a lot of lawyers around this country because I spend a lot of time networking. And so what would you say your superpower is? I would say my superpower is, is helping people find their win. And I don't mean that to sound weird. What I mean is in, in the context of law, I look at a lot of cases that have all kinds of challenges and I embrace the challenges and, and find ways to make those into opportunities. You've heard me say before, you know, my philosophy is how can the other side be 100% right and I still win? And it's by focusing on something that's more important than whatever the problem is. And so I help find that for in my cases and when I'm helping other lawyers. But then outside of law, I feel like I, at least I, I think that is what my purpose is. I mean, I have people who come to me. I'm, I'm always mentoring people. I've got mentor. I've got mentees at different levels of from ones who are looking to go to college to ones who are looking to go to law school to ones who are in law school to ones who've been practicing for 25 years and want to change. They're looking for their purpose. And I love and seem to have a knack for listening between the lines, helping people, help seeing where people's passion is and helping them open their eyes to see where it is. And then trying to be encouraging of them to follow that and bring it into the world. It's really, I love it. I mean, I, I love going and winning a jury trial. But at this point, I've been very blessed. And um, now I'm at a point in my life where it's just really fun for me to see how many people I can positively affect. Impact. Yeah. Oh, I know. And that's kind of, it's a great place. That's why, you know, one of the things I like, I say love best about putting conferences on is I know, because I know for myself, 
years, want, I feel like wandering, searching, like looking for the answers, looking for help, looking for people that really want to help me instead of, you know, just like, you know, I remember people say, if I could get one thing out of a conference, learn one thing, it's going to be worth it. And, and I, to myself, like if somebody only learns one thing at a TLU conference, I'm a failure because there's so much to learn. And by having this in Huntington Beach, there was basically 11 choices every day between the workshops or breakout groups and the lectures. And so my goal was for people to be exactly where they want to be. Because as a presenter, there's nothing worse than talking to an audience and half the people are on their laptops not even paying attention to you. And then I presented at Huntington Beach one, in one of the sections, and there was eight people there in my group. And I'm like, this is great. I'm so glad you guys chose to come see me as opposed to all the other great trial lawyers here that you know you could have gone and seen. You came to see me. I feel very honored by it. And so my goal was really help people be exactly where they want to be so they can learn what they want to learn, not what I just think they should know is kind of how I hope to design. A lot wrapped up in what you said. And, you know, part of part of what the work I'm doing now with my coach is all about, you know, how does ego annihilate in my freaking life? I mean, just taken over in my life. And, and um, you know, one of the things he always says is, I don't care what you do. I care why you're doing it, right? So like for speaking, you know, I do a lot of speaking, as you know, and the you know, question question he asked me is, why are you doing it? I mean, are you doing it? If any part of why you're doing it is because you need people to come and say, wow, that was a great presentation. You know, that's ego driven and um, probably not the best reason to be doing it, uh, at least the healthiest reason. And so what you just said, I think is, is really profound. It's not about how many people show up in the room. It's about what impact do you have? And if those people are there and they want to be there, and they're the ones who, you know, that's what the universe pulled together. And you don't know which one of those or which all eight of those are going to go out and now change the freaking world because they were there. So you do have to check your ego at the door, right? Because if you come in and you go, oh man, I've got a big room here and I got eight people in the room. My tendency historically would have not been to bring that positive attitude toward it. It would have been, damn, I mean, I suck. I'm terrible. See, this is just, a, this is just proof that I'm not really worth very much. Not as popular as I thought I was. Yeah, or whatever, whatever those, those messages, right? And, and those aren't true because you're no, and this is like what my coach always reminds me, he goes, you're no better of a human being. You're no better of a lawyer. You're no better of a, you know, you're more successful or not successful, whether somebody tells you you are or not. Like if someone comes up and says, Dan, that was horrible. It, it doesn't make you, it doesn't change who you are any more than if they come up and say, Dan, that was wonderful. I mean, it feels better for them to come and say it's wonderful, but it, we're getting far afield again. But you say superpower. I think I, I want my superpower to be, and I hope it is, that I help other people find their win, both in law and in life. I think that's a, a true, because if I think back upon it, you know, you did that for me, you know, and, you know, and uh, to, you know, help me find it, find my way. Because well, I also remember when we were talking when COVID started coming out, and I remember us talking about what could happen then? And you and I talked about um, just the concept of why don't we just, the best people were willing to come and just do this. And it doesn't have to cost a fortune. And right now people are stuck in front of their computers. They need something to do. And what if we could just, instead of looking at this as a downturn, what if we look at this as an opportunity to where at the end of COVID, the lawyers who are going to be going into courtrooms are exponentially better than they were before COVID and, and exponentially because now they actually have time to delve in and study this and become better when they're not, when they don't have 3 million other things going on. In a lot of ways, it was a phenomenal opportunity. And I think it was a great, I think, you know, it was a great opportunity for you too, because you were able to show your heart and kind of what you wanted, your vision for things and continue to get better yourself in putting things together, seeing where, you know, where, where, how do people learn better? Can I really force people to get on the phone with me beforehand for a couple hours before they're going to teach and be intentional in what they're doing instead of just winging it? I mean, we, we, you and I, you know, joke with each other a lot, but that stuff was truly not ever done before you did it. Not one time did I have, and you know, I've done hundreds, probably well over a thousand talks to trial lawyers over my career. And still to this day, the only person who's ever made me get on a call 
with them beforehand, substantively go through what am I doing? When am I doing it? Who do I want involved in the process? What exhibits am I using? What about this? What about that? Don't forget this. Don't forget that. It was you. You're the only person in all the thousands and thousands of talks that I've done. The only person who's ever made me do that. And my my work was better because of that. And you didn't only get me to do that. You got people like freaking Panish to do that. I mean, that's like unfreaking heard of. So I give you a lot of accolades. I give you a lot of crap. You know that because I love you. Um, but I'm I'm super proud of what you've done. I really am. Well, thanks, Joe. But let's speaking of preparation and what we're doing, because we're doing our first program on the East Coast in New York City, September 20th to 23rd. And you rearranged your schedule, so you're going to be there. So tell us, what are you going to be teaching at TLUNYC? Well, Dan, it's a little bit of work in progress. You and I have talked about a few options, and um, I hope to be teaching a... We did at Huntington Beach for the very, very first time, along with my good friend Satch Oliver, we did a program on negotiation that was... Uh, something has never, ever been done before. And, you know, Satch and I really kind of rolled up our sleeves. We've been studying negotiation at a pretty high level. And when you think about it, whoever's listening to this, ask yourself, you're, you're probably a very experienced trial lawyer. Ask yourself what training you've ever really had in negotiation. It's crazy. We're all, in, we're, we're, you know, and so Satch and I rolled up our sleeves. We laid everything out. And um, my hope is that, he and I can do that again in a session uh, in New York. That's one session I'd like to do. You and I have talked about me doing a, a session that's a, an update on uh, you help me uh, um, call something speed trial, which is really more about clarity than it is about speed. Speed is a intended result, but it's really about what I would talk about a minute ago, and that's kind of making the jury have to work is not any harder than is absolutely necessary for us to win and kind of finding the win in, in the case. Um, so I've got some updated stuff in that regard. And, and we talked about me doing a, a session on that. And then I'd like to, with your permission, um, do a breakout session that will be limited to uh, people who have some active truck crash cases that they're working on and that they feel that I can be of help with and do it in a, um, in a closed environment that would be open to just those people who are involved and maybe a few other people who want to learn by watching, but really have them kind of a bring file, bring your file, but do as a day long program that we really can both teach and really advance specific cases in. And, um, so I've been thinking about how I'd like to do that. And, um, I think that would be, that'd be good. So those three areas are what, I'm going to be involved in. And then, you know, I'm always the, a trucking guy. So anything that I can do uh, with the other guys who um, have been part of TLU in trucking, you know, people like Joe Camerlengo or Ed Saramboli or Satch or um, Michael Cowan or Jay Vaughn. Jay, not in that order. I meant to put you. <laughs> He's very sensitive. That red hair, you got to be careful those redheads. You can't piss a ginger oh, off, no, man. No. They don't forget. Yeah. You know, hostile. But any, you know, anything that I can do to support those guys, you know, th those have all been people who I've worked really, really closely together and uh, frankly have helped them develop their, their expertise. And, and those are, they're phenomenal lawyers. And I'd love to see uh, any help that I can give them. I'm, I want to be available to do. That would be great. I just had another idea too, that we did once before a little bit of, which is you doing like getting a focus group of like 10 regular folks and doing like a live jury selection for like maybe an hour and a half because you have this trial coming up. So you're getting ready for your jury. You're getting ready. So whether the trial goes or not, or whether they pay you the money you want, you're still going to have to go through all the mechanics of that jury selection and that opening statement. As you might imagine, I'm going, I'm going through it constantly in my head. Now, right. So. But I'm saying Already. this way, if you go into trial and whatever result, because we know it's not, a, it's trying a case. We don't know what the result's going to be, but that way. Right. Maybe like on Wednesday, you do like the jury selection and the opening statement for that trial so we can see how you do it because nobody ever records voir dire. I mean, you have a few cases. We should definitely talk about that. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do something like that. And what, one of the really interesting two areas that are super interesting about that case are 
jurisdiction is West Virginia. It's a jurisdiction where you can't ask for a sum certain of money. So you can't go, you can't say this loss is worth $10 million or $20 million. So I have to figure out a way to bring those numbers up and make it uh, that way. And I've got some ideas on, on doing that. And I have done some focus groups, by the way, on that idea. And then the other thing which we all struggle with is, and anytime there's a wrongful death case at all, how do you connect up the idea of money for death when it's not when it's not a situation where you've got, you know, a wage earner that's there that's needed to you know support a, a family anymore. In, in this case, it's an older man, and so you know, although he has a widow who certainly relied a lot upon him, it's not one of those cases where I can put big economic loss numbers up and couple that with not being able to ask for some certain. So there's some interesting jury selection that's got to be done, you know, to kind of address those issues. Yes, and I'll be looking forward to seeing it. That's why I came up with this new idea, since we talked about it a little bit. Is this a contract formed between you and I right now? Well, you know, I was come up with ideas, Joe, and then I plan them in your mind, and you sometimes reject them, know, sometimes I'm you don't. Just, I, and then eventually, like, you know what? That's a, it's like, I always tell people, give me ideas. I'm like, your idea was shit but you put it in my brain and then I fertilized it over a month and then it became my idea. And then I'm like, I got a brilliant idea. You know, the problem with that analogy is, you know what the fertilizer normally is? Shit. Right. That's why I shit on people's ideas all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, until I think about it a while, they become my idea. Now they're brilliant. Now they're brilliant. Well, you're the the puppet master. I'm merely the puppet. But seriously, as you know, when I come to any program, I like to, some of the best work that's done at a program for me is work that's done just one-on-one with somebody who didn't sign up for a special thing or didn't whatever. And we just have an opportunity to go drink a cup of coffee and and they they get something. And I always learn when I teach. So I always say there's never been a better time to be a plaintiff's lawyer than right now. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Because- it's, it's a lot because we've learned so much, including that sharing really is not, there's not a zero sum game here where that if, if, if I give you something, I become less because I've given to you. It's quite the opposite. The more we work together, the more we share, the better we become and the better we create a universe where the work that we do is more accepted. And so anyway, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of it and, um, I appreciate it. Well, I can't wait. And my final question here is Joe, cause you're pretty much at the top of your game, and I know you're trying to get better every day, but what do you think is, would you say is a thing that, you know, because people always, I hear so many people say, oh man, if I had a $20 million verdict and collected it, I got my, I'm done. And it's like, I, like to me, I can't imagine it. It's like, what would you do, first of all? And second of all, if you finally figured out how to do it, why would you not want to keep doing it? But yeah, that always blows my mind. But let me ask you, like, what is it that really kind of keeps motivating you to, to operate at a really high level you know, at the highest level you can every day, even with all the success and not slowing down? Well, the easiest answer is it's not money. Well, no. You know, because I, I mean, I think for those of uh, the people in this field, it starts out being about money. And then if you get, uh, if you get a, that kind of taken care of in your life, hopefully you find a way to change your focus to something else. And for me, it really is at this point, I feel so blessed. I, I mean, I feel like it's taken me 30 years to get reasonably good as a lawyer. I feel like I'm finally ready for my best work now and that I couldn't do any of it before. And so a lot of it has been, you know, peeling back. And so for me, I don't plan to, I mean, what what motivates me is to continue to get better, to continue. There's no better way. I told you at the beginning of this, I view myself as kind of a, a student of the human animal of which I am one. And there's no better laboratory for that than being a trial lawyer in all of the different ways. I mean, I get to learn about myself, every trial, every case, every examination, I learn something about myself if I've got my eyes open to do that. And not only about myself, when I learn about myself, I realize I'm nothing all that special. I'm just like everybody else. And so it's a, if, if that's true for me, I'm probably not alone, right? So is that a universal human thing that I ought to be considering? And I've learned a lot of those things over, and I just feel like, I feel like I'm at the verge. I'm, I always feel every day, I feel like I'm on the verge of, I'm going to learn one more thing today. I'm going to learn one more thing today and get a little bit better. Make it, you know, what my coaches helped me do is not look at that part, the end of whatever, as being a binary switch. 
which I used to. So I've already told you my life is about finding binary switches. But the one that I didn't really want is a binary switch of that my career ends up being one day I flip the switch and I'm, I'm done. What I'd rather do and what I've been doing is kind of redefining what does it mean to be a trial lawyer, right? And in, 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 earlier in my life, it meant I had to do everything myself. And slowly, through a painstaking process of learning how to trust, I've been able to hand pieces off to other people. And so now, part of my exercise, literally every few months, my exercise is to look at my life and saying, am I doing the things that energize me and that are positive things in my life, or am I falling into the quagmire? And so if I can, con- if I can continue to just do the things I love doing, why would I ever stop? And that includes teaching and it includes learning and includes trying some cases and then, you know, experimenting in all these different ways and being part of what I think is a movement, which is sort of the plaintiff's lawyer movement that I get to be involved in. And I feel so blessed to be. Me too. I get to be involved in it too. That's right. And now I need to become the, because I remember when I first started doing webinars, people send me emails and be like, Hey, I like your webinar, but could you shut the fuck up and not talk so much? And we both failed. You we know both what? failed miserably. Like, those on things this first... like hurt. I'm like, you know, because they, you know, you're like, you do, I'm trying my hardest, but you know, a lot of it resonated with me. And I think I developed into a better host of the webinars as time went on and help other people become good hosts too, because, you know, that was really fun for me to let somebody else host it because, A, well, first of all, I'm lazy. I don't have to do the work. But to accept helping them to get ready, but also because they get to get that connection with the trial lawyer. They get to get kind of, you know, this Absolutely. mentoring process by that trial lawyer and that relationship. And, and this is what we all want is more relationships, more connections, more friends, especially, you know, as we get older, it's a little harder to make new friends, you know, because we become more solidified in who we are and less tolerant of other people's peccadillos, if that's the right word. You redefine what it is to be a friend. I mean, there's a lot of acquaintances, but it's different than being than being friends. But I will challenge something you said. You are not lazy, my man. You're quite the opposite. You work hard. And you're not lazy. So I'm um, saying, though, the fact like, oh, somebody else is doing, somebody else is going to be the, you know, the personality. This is great. I get to sit back and watch and be a spectator and kind of, you know, I'm still in the background paying attention usually when I'm not hosting just because I want to. One of the lessons that I've recently learned is um, just to take everything as feedback to try not to attach all kinds of other things like that are, are personal to it. So if somebody says to me, you know, that, that you know, you, you went too long doing this or whatever, you know, that's great feedback. If I, if I don't attach to it and say, oh, I'm a piece of shit now. And I, but if I just realize, you know, that's really valuable feedback. Thank you for giving that to me. By the way, that may be one person's opinion, but it's still, it's still worthy feedback for me. And so I should consider it and um, consider making changes based on that. Right, it forces you to think. I remember when I, I did a, web, a webinar on voir dire and like teaching voir dire skills with Rex Paris. And when I showed him what I was doing, he's like, that all sucks. That's, you shouldn't, you know, that you're, you, know, you can't use scripts, this and that. And it affected me a little bit. And I was like, because, you know, I respect Rex a lot, but it forced me to rethink and rethink. And am I right? Am I wrong? And that process of rethinking and questioning is a great process. You just said better what I was trying to say. It's great feedback. No matter who gives it to you, it's not, it's worth considering. And then you can choose what you want to do. But if you're stuck in ego and you're, and you want to fight back against it, I, I didn't do this, right? I didn't, you know, that's, that doesn't help you get better, right? It just helps you not get better, right. help strengthen your ego. But Dan, I, I sure have appreciated our time together. I know we've gone way longer than, than anticipated, but, um, I always like spending time with you. Me too. But my final thoughts were that, you know, since this is the beginning of my new podcasting career, that when people, people who listen to this have feedback for me on my hosting skills, you know, I appreciate if you, if you give me a call, because that's the best way to, you know, really communicate. Because sometimes send, people send email or text and it, and it doesn't really come out across, you know, what they want to say. And I got to call them anyways, because I got to dig in deeper what, what they mean. So if you want to give me feedback on this, I'd appreciate it either way. And my cell phone's 248-808-3130. So just give me a call. And then that way I'll become, the, hopefully one day, the world's best podcast host for legal seminars. I forget the legal seminars. That's what to be the best podcast host. So we'll push Joe Rogan aside one day. Just the best. Just the best. I just want to be the best. You know, no, no competition. No ego here. All right, Joe. Great seeing you. 
And I'm not sure when I'm going to see you next. I don't know. It may be New York. Hmm. That's a long time away. What's the date of your trial in, in uh, June? I have to look and see. It's, it's the third week in June. So. Oh, I think I'm available that week. So maybe I'll come visit you in West Virginia if you really go. That'd be fun. See that me? Remember I talked about it three years ago. I'm like, we go to trial next. I think I'm seeing you. And you're like, ah, da, 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 da. But now I still might do that because I have a flexible schedule. Double check with me on the dates and I'll let you know when they are. And I'll also let you know if something breaks on it. Perfect. Thanks, Joe. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're going to have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University, produced and powered by LawPods.